Good morning, friends. It's nice to see you in person um, and online. I've forgotten you online. Uh, you are here too. It's good to be with you. Um, last year, after the stay-at-home order that seemed to go on and on, um, Dan and I began watching a TV show about this struggling British football team. And uh, if you don't know, um, that means soccer, apparently. <laughs> And uh, they're really struggling, they weren't doing well, and so their owner brought over this winsome um, American football coach, aka football football, to go and coach them, and his name is Ted Lasso. And um, I think of a picture of his team there. So you can imagine that's already a humorous premise because he doesn't know soccer, he only knows football, and yet here he is to coach them. In fact, everybody is assuming he's gonna fail. The, the fans are assuming he's going to fail, and they taunt him in the stands. And we come to find out that actually he's brought on by the team's owner because she's hoping he will fail. She's hoping he'll fail so she can rub it in the nose of her ex-husband who loves this team. But instead of crashing and burning, um, the new coach, instead with humor and insight and genuine goodness, um, instead he invites the team to believe. It's sort of like standard TV fare, but well done. But what I didn't anticipate is that my own hope levels as I was watching this seemed to be awakened just by Ted's way of being in the world. There's this phrase that people, uh, fans around him say, uh, they'd say this phrase right here, it's the hope that kills you. Because <laughs> they didn't want to get their hopes up, right? They didn't want to get their hopes up they could win. So he kept hearing this phrase, it's the hope that kills you. And one day, it's just a little bit much for him, and he slaps up a believe sign in their locker room, and he asks his team, right, of whom all is not well, he asks them, do you believe in miracles? And I felt myself nodding. I'm like, I know this is a TV show, but yes, I do. He says, he goes on to say, it's not the hope that kills you, it's the lack of hope that comes and gets at you. It's not every day I encounter a story that leads me to hope, but something about this TV show just kind of hooked me, uh, which is funny because you know I don't love sports, so it's more Dan's arena, uh, but just loved it. I found my hope levels rising, not just for, for Ted's fictional football team, but for my own story too. Do you believe in miracles? Friends, in a world where all is not well, stories that offer genuine hope are unusual. I think Ted Lasso went on to win something like seven Emmys this past season, and he's been renewed for another season, and just know it, it does have mature themes and language. So if you want to watch it, look it up first. Don't start watching with your grade school children until you research whether or not you want to show it to them. Okay, that's my disclaimer. Okay, did you get the disclaimer? Okay. Yes, yes, I heard a couple of chuckles. Okay, so in a world where all is not well, I mean, I think a lot of our stories actually showcase this for us, right? And if you've lived any amount of time in the real world, we know it's not well. Or if you watch shows like Squid Game, we know things, things are broken, they are not well. And, and into this world where all is not well comes a message of hope. Not just in little TV shows, but comes God's message of hope. And in first century Israel, when Jesus began preaching and began ministering, all was not okay there, all was not well. In fact, hope, hope was hard to come by. Hope was a dangerous thing, and it tended to live on the fringes of society. And every single day you lived in first century Israel, you would be reminded of all the things that were not okay, of all the ways that the world was not well, right? Each time you walked by tax collectors in the street that were taking huge amounts of money from people for the empire, you'd be reminded that all was not well. 
Each time you were confronted with a military garrison or you saw Roman soldiers patrolling the area, you'd be confronted with the fact that all was not well. Hope would shrink whenever you passed by a field or a vineyard that had been seized and taken away from families who owned it for generations, given the higher-ranking Romans to pay a debt. All was not well. To people living in a militarized zone, hope could be a dangerous thing. Their faith leaders were deeply fractured, too. Those leading the temple, the Sadducees, and the Jews leading prayer and assembly in the synagogues, the Pharisees, they were deeply divided about how to move forward in this world where all was not well. They were at odds from everything over whether or not the afterlife existed. Right? The Sadducees, they were strict literalists. And they're like, there's no afterlife mentioned in the first five books of the Bible, so we don't believe in one. The Pharisees are like, no, no, there's an afterlife. You know, the judge is coming, and, and one day things are made right. So they, they were really arguing about this and over many things. And much like people disagree over religion today, right, sometimes over things that can look a little odd to people um, on the outside, all was not well, even among the religious teachers in Jesus' day. So into this world, where politically, socially, economically, religiously, where all is not well. Into this world where hope is scarce, Jesus' ministry bursts onto the scene. The first recorded message of Jesus' career that we have is written about in Luke 4, which is our passage for today. And by this time, Jesus has spoken in a few villages, but scripture hasn't written down anything he said. There's something about this particular message in Nazareth, the town where he was raised as a boy. I'm not sure if you can see on, this, on the screen here, I'm just gonna show you a map of Jesus' ministry. I tried to circle it in red all the way Nazareth up at the top. So Jesus has been baptized in the Jordan, which is that long skinny river um, up from the Dead Sea. And he's, he's made his way into the wilderness where he's been uh, discovering what kind of leader he doesn't wanna be, what kind of servant he doesn't wanna be. And then we find him in Nazareth, that little thing that circled, uh, and he's there on a Sabbath. There's something important about this message that Luke wants us to know about. So let's go ahead and read it together. Uh, this is from Luke chapter four, verses 16 through 21. If you have your Bible, you can turn to it or you can turn it on if you're using your phone. I'll have it up on the screen too. Luke 4, 16 through 21. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was in grad school, I had a really hard time writing introductions for papers. Um, I would either make it too flowery or too long, or I'd somehow try to get the attention of the professor who I knew was really tired of reading lots of papers. Um, and so I would go to, go to the writing center. So a shout out to Rachel at the Fuller Seminary uh, Writing Center. Um, she, she was nothing short of miraculous. Uh, she would pull up my paper and she would promptly just like draw a whole circle around my introduction and put an X through it. And she'd say, you don't need that, you don't need that. Then she'd show me where I buried the thesis statement and she'd invite me to, to make it front and center. 
This passage of scripture that we just read, a lot of commentators call it Jesus' thesis statement, Jesus' mission statement for his ministry. And just more like Ted Lasso, like he centers his, his believe sign, right? he makes it his team's mission statement. The writer Luke takes this message of Jesus and puts it front and center as if to say, this is what I'm all about. This is what Jesus is all about. Here is his thesis, people. Here it is. So if you could picture the scene, scene with me for a moment, right? Word has got around town that Jesus, who's, you know, um, Joseph's son is, is grown up and he's back in town and he's a prophet now apparently and everyone wants to hear what he has to say. So it's finally the Sabbath. Everyone crowds into the synagogue, right? Whether it's friends and neighbors of the whether it's friends of the family, neighbors, maybe some relatives, maybe curious strangers. So they, they all crowd in the synagogue. They want to hear for themselves. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, is given the scroll of Isaiah to read. He searches until he finds what he wants to read. And he says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Can you feel the weight of it, the hope? in it. Into a world where all is not well comes a message from God. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. This phrase, this passage that Jesus reads comes right from the book of Isaiah, which was written centuries earlier in their people's history, which also came at a time where all was not well. If you read through the book of Isaiah as Jesus did, you'll see the running list of all the ways God's people needed to stop, turn around, change their ways. That's what the word repent means, turn around. In the very beginning of Isaiah 1, in Isaiah's thesis, he tells the people of God there to cease to do evil and learn to do good. Do justice, correct oppression, defend the fatherless, plead for the widows. Isaiah's list in Isaiah 1 goes on and on. His call for repentance, his calls for turning and change also include a message of hope, though. All is not well, but it need not stay that way. And here, now in the synagogue, hundreds of years later, Jesus picks up this passage to read and says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Hundreds of years long after God's people did not repent long enough or consistently enough to change the trajectory they were on, come once again the notes of this hopeful refrain. Do you dare to believe the spirit of the Lord is on me, Jesus reads. And as he says it, every eye in the room on him, waiting to hear what he says next. Now when Jesus reads this, this first line, uh, the spirit of the Lord is on me, I invite us to pause here and not rush right into the text, what comes next. Because if you had never read what comes next, uh, I invite you to, to ask yourself, what would you fill in the blank? If you heard Jesus in that synagogue and you were one of the people crammed in there and you heard Jesus begin to read, the spirit of the Lord is on me, you know, if you could just transport yourself back a couple thousand years as you are now knowing what you know, what would you fill in the blank for Jesus? I invite us to think about this for a second, to do this exercise, because I think it helps us see some of our own assumptions that we've put onto Jesus. Right? Like if I had to fill that out uh, based on the messages I heard in church as I was a kid, I would probably answer something like this. Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is on me, and then he goes on to say, to save people's souls from hell, 
help keep them on the straight and narrow way, away from sin so as to live a pure and holy life, offer acceptable worship, and achieve the high calling of God. That's what the group, the church I grew up in, would say. Or maybe that's just what I extrapolated from them. Maybe they'd put it a little better than that. But that's what I would fill in the blanks with. But is that what Jesus said? It's not what he said. That wasn't the thesis of his ministry. Even though we can find bits and pieces of that all throughout scripture, it's not what Jesus says here. So what was the point of Jesus' ministry? What was Jesus' mission statement? Is it to take us out of this world? This world is a really brutal place. It's a really difficult place. Did Jesus come to rescue us out of it? No. We actually know from other scriptures that Jesus didn't come to take us out of the world. Um, on the night that he's betrayed, he lets his disciples know that really hard stuff is coming. And he says that their role is to stay in it. Stay in the difficult thing. In John 17, Jesus prays, Father, I am not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Okay, so we're called to stay in the world to resist the evil that's present. Okay, so it's not Jesus' mission to take us out of the world. We got that? Um, maybe the point of Jesus' ministry is to judge the world. Right? Scripture reassures all who suffer that there will be a final reckoning. Right? The judge is coming to all who pursue ways of living that damage. But Jesus' ministry wasn't to judge the world, or at least that's what he says. He tells his disciples in John 12, I did not come to judge the world. And to Nicodemus, the seeker, in John chapter 3, he says this, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. If these things are what Jesus' mission statement is not, what is it? If we were to zoom out a little bit from Jesus' message here and look at the whole chapter of Luke, we'd see that it begins with Jesus being tested in the wilderness by the accuser. The text tells us what Jesus is not going to do. That is who he is not going to put his hope in. So let's go ahead and let's zoom back into our text for today, his message in the synagogue. And let's read it together. So I actually invite you, if you want to look up at the screen, I invite you to read it out loud with me. This is starting in verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, or the year of the Lord's favor. This is Jesus' mission statement. This is what he says. He rolls up the scroll, he gives it to the attendant, and he says this, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Can you imagine the hope? Friends, this mission statement of Jesus, it reveals the heart of God. Reveals the heart of God. If you're following along in your notes and you want to fill in the blanks, in this passage we see the heart of God to mend. We see the heart of God to mend all that has come apart. Jesus' thesis, we see the heart of God. And what is the heart of God? It is to mend all that has come apart. See, Jesus, in this, he's revealing the priorities of God for radical wholeness. 
as all that is twisted, fractured, torn apart, all that is broken, all that is not well, God comes to mend. Now, I use the word mend. We could easily use the word heal. I think theologically, you can basically swap them in or out. They're just very similar. But personally, I prefer the word mend because there's some connotations of the word heal sometimes in the church that can have a little bit of baggage with them. So I, I like some of the other connotations with mending um, that have to do with things that are broken apart being put back together again. And I, I remember this one time I got a phone call from my son's school. I am not telling you which one. Rest assured, I'm keeping the story private. One of my children, I received a phone call from their nurse, and apparently during recess, their pants had split apart. And so our poor child was waiting in the nurse's office for one of us to pick him up and bring him home because he didn't want to be seen with his pants torn asunder. Poor kid. So that night I took his pants and I put a patch on the inside and I sewed it all together and I, I double stitched it just to make sure it was really, really strong and it wouldn't rip again. And you could see the stitching I had made if you looked really closely. What had been torn apart was, be, was able to be brought back into alignment again. It was able to be mended. And sin, sin tears things apart, friend. It's the opposite of shalom, which is when there is justice and harmony and alignment and peace. God comes to mend. Let's go ahead and let's look at the groups that Jesus talks about in this passage, just to see how the mending of God plays out for them. Because you might be like, what do any of those things that Jesus said have to do with mending? I it's a good question. Let's look at it. So the first, the first one is um, the poor will have the good news preached to them. I see this as mending from the world's skewed priorities on who gets to be blessed first, right? Usually the VIP list, that's reserved for the people who have wealth, have influence. And yet here, the good news is preached who to who? The poor. You see, the Spirit is inaugurating a new way of being where good news comes not to the privileged and powerful first, but to the poor. And if you want to be part of the good news because it is for everyone, then you need to be near the poor to hear it, near the shepherds, near the unwed mother, near the foreign wise men. The next section of people that isn't mentioned are the brokenhearted. The brokenhearted are healed. This is mending what has become fractured, what is broken, what is wounded. Captives receive proclamation of liberty, right? This is mending which announces God's inbreaking reality of freedom. The blind receive recovery of sight. This is mending that brings in whole functioning. The oppressed are set free. This is mending that frees from power that subjugates or oppresses or abuses. Friends, the heart of God for God's world is mending. And God knows we need mending because all has not been well for a very long time. All is not well now, even here. Ever since the beginning, scripture tells us that it did begin well. Humanity was created and called very good and given a garden to flourish and co-tend. It was more than well. It was very good. But when the evil one took words and twisted them, humanity, both male and female, were formed by this act. Suspicion, fear, blame, selfishness came into a place of what had otherwise been shalom. It had been a place of wholeness and peace, and this ripped them apart. When you read the first few pages of Jesus' Bible and ours, we see that God's good world became a place that needed mending. In so many ways, right? There's rifts between humans and each other, 
right? Shame and blame kept men and women from the loving and giving and co-creating. Mending is needed between the genders, between people groups, between the sexes. Mending is needed between humans and the land. Right, it becomes very difficult to, to eke out a living. The, the land seems to work against us, and we sometimes work against the land. Mending is needed there. Mending is needed between humans and God. Right, as, as the humans go hide in the garden, and note here, it's not God who hides. There is no blockage on God's side that needs to be removed. It's us humans who need to be reconciled to God. And this is what Jesus does in his ministry of reconciliation, as Paul calls it. His ministry of mending what has been ripped apart. Friends, we need this work of God's. Right now, in our community, in our church, in our state, in our world, because all is not well. I'm sure if you just thought for just a minute, you would be able to name all the ways that things are not well. The hurts, the wrongs, the injustices, they're real. We participate in them. Our children, they're growing up in a world clogged with trash and with increasing weather challenges. Our kids see the inconsistencies of how people of faith have called on communities, called on our country for transformation, but not modeled it ourselves. Right, we say that we want to have our Christian values followed, but then we live lives that would be completely unrecognizable to the early church. Our prophets have allied themselves with political parties and chosen ideology over listening ever deeper for the word of the Lord. The extreme gap between rich and poor of this world continues to grow in toxic and abusive ways. When you have a world where eight of the richest billionaires own the same wealth as the poorest half of the world's population, something is morally and ethically wrong with the way the world is set up. And although I don't have the answers or the resources to tackle it on my own, I know the one who does. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. I have enough hope to say that even though all is not well, it need not stay that way. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, says Jesus. We see the heart of God to mend. Now, God's mending work, it's not a fluffy spirituality. It's not just some feel-good message, because mending can be really disruptive and messy. It can be really painful work. It's necessary work. I know that times in my life where I've been invited into deeper healing, deeper mending with God, have been times when I had to face a lot of pain I might not want to face. I'm reminded of when I was serving as a chaplain um, resident for a year in the Los Angeles area. There was one gentleman that I met early on um, who I would talk and pray with. And over time, I noticed that his name kept popping up in my chart because he kept getting readmitted. Um, he'd had a, a wound on his leg, get infected in an accident, and it never healed. It just would not mend. And so in order for him to be mended, they had to cut parts of it away. And then as the year went on, they had to amputate a few toes. And by the end of the year, they had to cut off his leg. They had to amputate his leg. See, the mending work, it was hard and messy. Things had to be removed. It was difficult. He was up for the challenge. He was a feisty grandpa. He was awesome. He showed up for the painful work anyway. And friends, I see you doing this. I see Wellspring showing up for the painful work of doing mending. Mending costs something, right? When you think of Jesus, Jesus paid for the mending with his life. So in this passage, number one in your notes, just reiterate, we see the heart of God to mend all that has come apart. Next thing is, 
so we can mend and join God's mending mission too. In this passage, we see the heart of God to mend so we can mend and join God's mending mission too. Right? Although all is not well in our world, through Christ's reconciling work, we can be part of God's mending work now. We can choose to be courageous, choose to step into the messiness, somehow with hope believing that the not well of our world can be made well. And this is a bold and outrageous claim. Right? This is a bold and outrageous hope when you look at Jesus' 11 disciples and his closest friends and down through the centuries, people who dared believe this. That was, it's outrageous of them to believe it, and yet they did because they took what Jesus said seriously. When Jesus told his disciples before his death in John 14 that the Spirit will be with you and live in you, they believed they could mend and be part of God's mending mission in the world. We see from their lives and legacy, the Spirit of the Lord was on them. The Spirit of the Lord was on Julian of Norwich, a woman, a theologian who lived in the Middle Ages during a time of plague, violence, and divisions. And no, I didn't just pick her because she has a cat. (laughs) I I have a cat uh, that you may have heard about that our family newly loves, yes. So I didn't just pick her because of her cat, but because of this bold and outrageous claim that she makes. You see, in the midst of a time where people were being burned at the stake for theological disagreements, right, there was so much brokenness and hate in their political systems, the economy was in shambles. And with, with all of this mess around her, this woman leaned into Jesus and received a series of visions that she reflected on for 30 years. She asks God about sin. God, what about sin? And she hears this phrase spoken to her heart. All will be well. All shall be well. All manner of things will be well. The Spirit of the Lord was on her. Because that is a bold and audacious claim. She dedicated her life to God and she committed to living in a tiny little room called a cell with a sliding screen attached to the church. And she stayed there the rest of her life. So people would come from all around to speak to her and she would just slide the little screen open. And she'd listen, she'd pray with people, she'd weep with people, she gave wise counsel. She corresponded with so many people in her day who were looking for real spirituality, for hope, for God's grace to break through what was not well. And miraculously, she was not burned at the stake. I still don't know how that happened. I mean, pretty much anything she was saying at the time, she could have been burned at the stake for, so it's kind of cool that she survived. But her her visions and her writings, as she kept meditating on the work of Jesus and on the mending work of God, continue to give hope, even today, in our pandemic. The Spirit of the Lord was on her. Friends, history is full of people whom the Spirit of the Lord is on. D.L. Moody saw street children lining the slums of 19th century Chicago, and he began a street school for them, street church for them, excuse me, changed the course of their life and his. He found the spirit of the Lord on him to bring good news to the poor. I think of Mary McLeod Bethune, who was born after the the Civil War. She was the 15th out of 17 children, and she was the first to be born out of slavery. 
And she quickly realized that education was going to be key for her and her people's liberation. And so she, she began going to, to school, which was five miles away, one way. So she would literally walk 10 miles every day to go to school. And then she would teach the rest of her siblings what she was learning. And she kept growing in her faith. She wound up becoming the first African-American woman, the first black person ever to attend uh, D.L. Moody's school, um, uh, Moody Bible Institute. She decided to become a missionary, and she moved to Florida, where she started a small little school for black girls. And she had limited resources. She was hounded by the KKK who kept coming by. And she and her little group of girls would stand on the patio and sing spirituals until the KKK left. The spirit of the Lord was on her. She wound up educating so many children, boys and girls, that the school became a college. She opened hospitals, became a leader to her generation, even inviting presidents. And before she died in the 1950s, I believe she died in 1955, she said this, I leave you love. I leave you hope. I leave you faith. I leave you racial dignity. I leave you a responsibility to your young people. The spirit of the Lord was on her to mend Friends, the Spirit of the Lord is on you, with you, in you. Do you believe? All is not well, but it can be made well. And you and I, as Wellspring, get to be part of this work of God's, here in our little community, in our own lives, and reaching out through Honolulu and beyond. This is good news. This is hopeful news. There's also a difficult part to this good news, and that's some hard news. If you keep reading in our story for today, um, I feel like I can't, I can't end the passage before we go all the way through. If you keep reading through Jesus' message, you'll see that even though his message of mending, his mission statement was really well received by the crowd, um, they, they turn on him when his message is over because he reminds them that God's mending work isn't just for them and their group of people. They don't get to pick who receives God's grace. In fact, the people in Jesus' hometown, they're so upset about this that they're ready to throw Jesus over a cliff. Sometimes those we expect to line up and receive God's work of mending are those who say, no thanks, not today. Or, I don't want to include them. Or, how could God's ministry of mending be for those people? Sometimes it feels like it takes too much work to begin mending some wounds. But friends, we have the work of Christ with us and in us. You've been gathered in, many of you because you needed a mend. This is one of the values of Wellspring, right? We, ra- we value a radical wholeness for us, working in Jesus in all areas of life. So let's continue. Let's continue living into this. Let's continue um, reaching out and not putting limits on who God wants to mend, who God wants to bless. As we continue to move forward in this next chapter of Wellspring, let us move forward knowing that the Spirit of the Lord is on you. The Spirit of the Lord is on you and you and you and you, on us all. We don't deny the hard things of life, but neither will we close our eyes to the healing work of God because Jesus is here to mend. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that... uh, Your kingdom is at hand. You are here. You're a radical way of life which invites 
a whole reorientation of, of who we are and how we are in the world, invites us into healing and mending in all areas of life, the emotional, um, in our family systems, uh, the way that we enter into conflict, the way we communicate, um, who we include in the world. Your spirit is on us to do this work. Lord, I pray that we continue to step into the rich history Wellspring has of mending. As we continue to grow as a community, as we welcome new friends among us who become family, that you help us to, to ever ask, what does it mean for us to continue mending as people, but also to do the work of God? Be with us, Holy Spirit. Fill us. Guide us. So we can join you in your beautiful, wonderful mending work. And friend, if you're listening right now and you're maybe online or you just kind of came across uh, this live stream and you don't know how to begin uh, a life with God, maybe there's some mending that needs to be done. I invite you to pray just a simple prayer, something like, Lord Jesus, I don't know you very well, but I'd like to know you more. I know there's a lot of rifts in my life. There's a lot of brokenness. I've contributed to really unhealthy ways of being. Um, I need to repent. I need to turn. I need to turn my life around. I, I give myself to you. I invite you to come into my life. I give you consent. I ask that you fill me with your spirit so I can join you, so you can mend me, and I can be about your work. If you pray to prayer like that, feel free to send us a little chat in the chat section or a direct message. Um, we'd love to follow up with you. God's grace and mending be on you all. Amen.